15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello, once again, thank you for joining us. This is the Space Nuts podcast, episode 247. I am your host, Andrew Dunkley. Great to be with you again. And joining me, as always, is Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. Hello, Andrew. How are you doing? I am well, thanks. How was your Easter? Uh, busy. Uh, mm. with, uh, the, uh, I'm right at the pointy end of the children's book. And... Oh. Uh, the last bit is the cartoons, which I'm drawing. <laughs> that must I, be fun. It, it's, a, it's absolutely heaps of fun, and I really enjoy it, but they take kind of longer than you expect, so I'm mm. really up against the deadline. Um, but we'll see how I go. I have a bit of an extension from the publisher to the middle of this month to get the cartoons done, and I'm, I'm getting there. <laughs> middle of this month, which is a week. Uh, it is actually a week. That's right. Uh, exactly. Um, I might do some. Uh, well, I'll just have to see if I can do some fast talking. I hope nobody from New South Press is listening to this, but <laughs> um, we're in good shape. I'm about to send off the um, the text, uh, which I'll hopefully do today, and probably the, the cartoons for the first four chapters, which are the ones that are actually complete. Terrific. Yeah. yeah. Can't wait. Yeah, what about your Easter, Andrew? How did you go? Oh, my boys came up from Sydney. Um, my eldest and my youngest live down there. My middle child, also a boy, uh, lives just down the road from us with the three grandchildren. And uh, we all got together and it's the first time they've all seen each other in three years. And it's the first time that my um, two Sydney boys have met their uh, their niece, their youngest niece. So okay. that was all very exciting, and it, and it went well. So you know, family barbecues, sitting around the fire pit, although it wasn't really cold enough for a fire pit, but we did the marshmallow thing, and that was a disaster. But uh, it was <laughs> it was pretty good fun. It was really nice to just sit back and do nothing and just talk about whatever we felt like talking about at the time. <laughs> we usually end up we usually end up having these big discussions about movies. I don't know why, but that seems to be the family topic whenever we get together. Yeah, we've got to talk about something. It's, it's well, better it's... than talking about politics. Yeah. <laughs> Although we do that too. Well, most people now, talk about what's wrong with Auntie Mabel or, you know, something like that. So it's good that you've got yeah. something different. Oh, we did that too. We did that too. <laughs> <laughs> And how did you know I had an Auntie Mavel? Oh, there you now, go. <laughs> coming, coming up in this episode, Fred, we're just going to touch on ingenuity. The helicopter, the test is about to happen mm. and uh, they're, they're being super-duper careful about this, but uh, who can blame them? They can't send the mechanic out if the wheels fall off. Right. <laughs> There's also some new data that's come out of uh, examining the Chicxulub crater. That's that uh, big asteroid impact that uh, polished off the dinosaurs about 66 million years ago. Actually, it's been about a year since we talked about this, so it's 66 million and one years ago. <laughs> Uh, there's um, also been a discovery of one of those elusive intermediate black holes, we think. And we're going to tackle some text questions today. We haven't done any for ages, but we're going to do a couple today. Actually, two double bungers. Andre from the Netherlands has sent us two questions, and so has David from Springfield. So we will get into those on this week's episode. But first, Fred, let's uh, let's go back to Mars and talk about this, uh, this, this test flight that's coming up soon for Ingenuity. Uh, the news I hear is that they uh, have dropped the helicopter from the belly of the beast, Perseverance, and it is um, 
getting ready to be, you know, ramped up, almost literally. Exactly, that's right. Um, there's a there's a, a tweet uh, from NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which I liked. This was uh, at the weekend. Uh, I liked very much. It said, um, Mars helicopter touchdown confirmed. It's 293 million mile or 471 million kilometre journey aboard NASA's Perseverance ended with the final drop of four inches, <laughs> 10 centimetres, from the rover's belly to the surface of Mars today. Next milestone, survive the night. Mm. And that's because um, as of, uh, I think it was Saturday, uh, per the Ingenuity helicopter has been now relying on its own power for the heaters that keep the electronics warm, because un until then it was taking power from Perseverance itself. Now it's on its own, and so um, you know it relies on the batteries, the internal batteries, and the solar panel, which sits on top of the uh, the two rotor blades. Uh, so uh, hopefully that will all keep going well. Um, the heater apparently keeps the inside at about seven degrees Celsius or forty five degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, because the you know the temperature on Mars drops to way way below zero, it can be as low as 90, minus ninety Celsius, or about one hundred and thirty minus one hundred and thirty Fahrenheit. So look, it's um, it, it, I think all is going well as far as I know. They've checked out the solar panels, and we haven't heard anything to the contrary. Uh, the first flight uh, now I read somewhere that it was planned for the eighth of April, but the latest is not before the eleventh of April. Uh -huh. So uh, we still have a few more days to wait. But uh, isn't it going to be fantastic? The first flight is oh, yes. going to be climbing uh, ten, uh, round about 10 feet, uh, three metres or so. And a hover Just there. Just like Perseverance, which has gone six metres. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's obviously gone further now because it's had to drive over off. the... Uh, yeah, drive over the, the helicopter so it doesn't, you know, accidentally back into it or something like that. It's it's going to be fascinating, Fred, in that the um, the atmosphere being so thin, yep. uh, it takes a lot more effort to get off the ground than it would on Earth, surprisingly. But uh, the, the thing in their favour is the lesser gravity. So uh, I'm not sure that will counter the, the thin atmosphere, but it will to a degree, I imagine. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really going to be very interesting to see whether it works or not, given the 1% uh, you know, atmospheric pressure uh, on Mars. But look, it's uh, it, 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 uh, the engineers have done their job. My bet is that it will work just fine. Yes. Uh, well, everything's gone so well so far. We've yeah, just got exactly. to keep that momentum going. Yeah. And uh, to get off the ground, they've got to they've got to achieve some massive um, rotational rate, haven't they? It's uh, yeah. it's quite two, astonishing. Two thousand and four hundred RPM is the is the rotor speed. It's pretty yeah. fast, certainly faster and, than and your average look, helicopter. If it doesn't get off the ground, uh, we can wait till Mars is terraformed, turn it upside down, and turn it into a lawnmower. <laughs> so, uh, you might have a long wait because uh, <laughs> terraforming Mars is physically impossible because the atmosphere yeah. just flies away. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. Yeah. All right. Uh, so, and I notice uh, a lot of people have been talking about this on the Space Nuts podcast group. Good, good. Uh, so there's a lot of excitement. Everyone's really looking forward to this. And look, why not? I mean, it's never been done before. This is this is all brand new science in terms of flying a. a an aircraft on another planet. So um, we can't uh, 
we can't not be excited about this, I'm sure. But, uh, yeah, hopefully in the next week or two we'll be able to tell you um, what happened because no one else will. No one else will bother. <laughs> It'll just be us. <laughs> now let's uh, move on to our next topic and, and uh, we're revisiting an old friend, the, uh, the asteroid that um, came down in what is now the Gulf of Mexico and obliterated the planet, not just the dinosaurs. It finished them off. But there's some new research that's come out that suggested that uh, other things happened as a consequence of this impact that um, probably had a big effect on why the Earth is the way it is today. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, this is something that certainly I've never thought about before, um, but uh, scientists at uh, various institutions think deeply about this kind of thing. The, one of the effects of the uh, the asteroid... Sorry, Dinosaur-killing asteroid, if I can call it that. We usually call it the Cretaceous Tertiary Event. Uh, in fact, it's got a slightly like different that. name. But, uh, yeah, the KT event, uh, when um, 66 million years ago, when something we think about 15 kilometres across hit the Earth at about 30 kilometres per second and caused not just a big explosion, but, you know, all, all the... The, the absolute devastation that you'd expect, including a blanket of ash that would have um, uh, stopped the solar radiation, probably got a kind of nuclear winter effect, all of that. Uh, and so um, I think actually, come to think of it, you and I have spoken before about the effects on the fossil record um, mm. in terms of the microorganisms, because... Um, it, it, it's it, you know we we know the dinosaurs don't appear above that layer of the strata in in the uh, in the earth's uh, in the earth's crust the, the the fossil levels different fossil levels um, so uh, people have analysed other things not just the uh, the traces of the dinosaurs they've looked at fossils for example of leaves and and pollen uh, and. Leaves tell you something really interesting because uh, often they've got insect bites in them. And, oh, yeah. Um, it's, apparently, this is one of the things that they've looked at. Insect bites on fossilised fossilized leaves uh, essentially show that uh, insect diversity uh, fell dramatically after the event. Mm. As did plant life. In fact, the same is true with the leaves themselves. You, you know, you, you you get this decline. In fact, by a, a, an assumed roughly forty-five percent. Uh, that's diversity of plant life. It's not the number of plants. It's the number of species of plants uh, shot down by forty-five percent after the impact. Uh, and and the, the fossil record shows it took about six million years to recover to something like it was. But um, the the other really interesting aspect of this work, and it, it comes from. Uh, uh, a scientist called Carlos Jaramillo, I think is probably how you pronounce his name, um, in the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute in Panama. Um, he, he, he says, if you return to the day before the asteroid fell, the forests of South America would have been an open canopy with a lot of ferns, many conifers and dinosaurs, of course. Yeah. Yes. The forest we have today is a product of that one event 66 million years ago. And essentially what they're suggesting is that uh, the, the, the conifers and the ferns uh, basically disappeared and the, 
that they were replaced by essentially flowering plants, but that it it actually increased the canopy. The canop the forest canopy is much greater now than it was before. Um, uh, actually, another comment from one of the other scientists, Ellen Curano, she's at the University of Wyoming. I think the one number one lesson here is unpredictability. When you have these major perturbations, they change the rules of the whole ecosystem. And one of the things that they're suggesting is that uh, in the in the lower levels of the forest, uh, the dinosaurs before the impact were treading out, trampling everything down and kind of eating stuff. So the lower levels were much more sparsely, uh, you know, much more sparsely um, uh, variated or what's the word for populated by by plants, uh, mm. much more, much more sparsely covered. Um, the, so the dinosaurs had gone. So that changed what was happening to the, the, the forest floor. But at, at the, the other side of the coin is, and I mentioned the ash that came because of the impact uh, a minute ago, but when that settled on the ground, because it all basically falls out of the atmosphere effectively, yeah. they're suggesting that uh, it served as a fertiliser. So you end up with a much more nutrient-rich soil and you get these fast-growing flowering plants uh, and, you know, um, they, they sort of bounce back in a way that some of the other plants don't. Um, and uh, actually another quote from somebody called Bonnie Jacobs, who's at the Southern Methodist University in Texas, she says, we love the way it ended up, this incredibly diverse, really structurally complex forest, but right now... We should be aware that we're living through a mass extinction caused by humans. Once again, ecosystems are being set on a different path. So there's a lesson in this, um, you know, that uh, that comes back to us from the, the Cretaceous tertiary boundary, that events like uh, asteroids can change the whole ecosystem for another, uh, another 60 billion, 66 million years. Um, yeah. And we are kind of mucking around a bit too. Yeah, what I found interesting was it, we draw a line where the dinosaurs stop and then life as we know it starts to begin, I guess. But the other interesting factor that came out of this is that uh, you, you spoke of the conifers and the ferns that disappeared, but they were replaced by legume trees, trees that produce pods and seeds and, and, uh, and, and they sort of don't exist prior to this impact. So it, it changed the the planet to a point where um, it, it, you'd have to say it was an extremely dramatic change in the entire ecosystem and development of the planet's life cycles and and the types of um, life that that came about. And one wonders what humans might or might not be like had that thing never hit us. Oh yeah. Yeah, mm. we may well not have been here because uh, maybe uh, dinosaurs ruled the earth at that time. They were big and ferocious, and mammals were small creatures that kind of cowered under the under the what what what, what uh, cover they could find and on the on the forest floor. Yeah, uh, yeah we um, we we may be a product uh, indirectly a product of that event. And another thing that comes to my mind is I wonder if there was anything in that asteroid that ended up in the atmosphere after the impact that settled down and perhaps caused 
certain factors of life to change or alter. I don't know. It's it's a bit of a bit out there. There um, is certainly one thing that that was in it is what told us it was there at all, and that's the iridium that was present in the um, in the the asteroid, which is not really found uh, in any great quantity on the in the Earth's crust, mm-hmm. but it is uh, it's essentially uh, something that you do find in extraterrestrial objects. And it was um, uh, basically Luis Alvarez and his son, whose name I can never remember. It's terrible. It's uh, shocking. Louis uh, Jr. Walter. Walter. Walter Alvarez. It's close. close to me. Yeah. Uh, Luis and Walter Alvarez. Um, they were essentially, um, you know, geophysicists, but they they discovered this layer of iridium that corresponds to the boundary mm. where between uh, strata that's got dinosaur fossils and strata that hasn't. And that was when they actually they alerted two colleagues of mine uh, in Edinburgh who were working on this at the time. I probably mentioned this before. Bill Napier and Victor Klub were working on the same thing. And uh, they, um, you know, basically the uh, the information was, um, was shared, although, in fact, Bill and Victor really didn't share in the glory of it all it was the Alvarez uh, duo that have uh, shared in the glory because they they had a press release very quickly after that yeah well fair enough yeah, yeah he who hesitates is lost yeah, well that's right and uh, of course we we're terribly British in Edinburgh we were we were yes. uh, scientists actually I should say we were terribly British in Edinburgh <laughs> um, because that's in Scotland but yeah yes. it was um it was a, an unhappy time for Victor and Bill. I remember it very clearly because I was working with them, not on that topic, actually, on other stuff. Fair enough. But, uh, yes, more information coming out of uh, the um, study into the Chicxulub crater. And, uh, yeah, who knows what else we'll discover. But uh, the, the the rainforests, as we know them, uh, just didn't look anything like that or have the plant life that Mm -hmm. uh, they have today. They were very, very different indeed. Uh, So what else are we going to learn, I wonder? We'll we'll tell you when we find out. (laughs) Hopefully. Yes. This is the Space Nuts podcast uh, with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Space Nuts. This is episode 247 of the Space Nuts podcast podcast and Andrew Dunkley here with Fred Watson and a big shout out to our patrons the people who put a little bit of money every month into the kitty to uh, feed Fred's cat and to um, you know keep the website running things like that Uh, we thank you uh, from the bottom of our hearts that you you think we are worthy of a, a few dollars if you would like to become a patron just go to our website spacenutspodcast.com and click on the subscribe button. It's up on the top right-hand corner, whichever one that is, because I'm facing a camera and it could all be reversed. I have no idea. But uh, you can click on there and, and see what options are available to you. You can subscribe to Package Deals, which gives you two or three podcasts, depending on what you want to do. Uh, or you can just make a one-off donation, or you can become a patron through Patreon or through Supercast. What we're ultimately aiming to do is to make the podcast 100% reliant on listeners only and that means uh, getting as many patrons as we can and and it's good to see a few more have signed up in the last week or so Fred so fantastic and thank you thank you so much let's move on to our next topic Fred and uh, this headline has got me um, scratching my head we're talking about uh, intermediate black holes now we've we've spoken about those before Um, they're up until recently have been only two kinds found, 
little tiny ones, and others that are about, I don't know, 55,000 times the mass of the sun or something, or maybe even bigger, I don't know, some of them are millions times bigger. Uh, some of them as big as galaxies, as we talked about last week. But the ones that are middle-sized, the ones that are, you know, somewhere around 150 times uh, the mass of the sun are few and far between. And until recently, we didn't even know if they existed. Well, this headline, Fred, in Cosmos, uh, reads, Astronomers find Goldilocks black hole. Goldilocks black hole. What does that mean? Uh, That's a really good question. It's not a headline I would have used. Goldilocks usually refers to things being not 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 too cold and not too hot, but just right. Uh, but maybe it's a Goldilocks black hole because um, it has been, uh, you know, it's it's the sort of uh, who has been sitting in my chair kind of oh, side of right. Goldilocks. Yeah, could be, maybe. could be. <laughs> mm. um, but no, you're right uh, that uh, it is one of the puzzles of astronomy that we find what we call stellar mass black holes, which are up to about 100 times the mass of the sun. And um, the supermassive black holes, which start at something like 100,000 times the mass of the sun, probably usually bigger. We, most of the ones we know about are millions of times the mass of the sun, and some are billions of times, like the, the one in M87 that, that was imaged by the Event Horizon Telescope. That's 6.5 billion times the mass of the sun. So there's, there's this gap in, in the middle, uh, the elusive uh, intermediate mass black holes, as they're called. And there are a few... Um, a few suggestions of where these things might be found. There's, there's, uh, some people have suggested they might be in the centres of what we call globular clusters. These are clusters of stars that we think are, well, they may be the remnants of, uh, of the nuclei, the centres of some galaxies that our galaxy has gobbled up, smaller dwarf galaxies. But mm. the, the, this field is still wide open. Um, this story, though, relates to probable detection of an intermediate black mass black hole and in fact its mass is right in the, the middle of that range it's about 55,000 uh, times the mass of the sun that's the uh, the estimated mass but it has been detected by gravitational lensing uh, so uh, which is a really neat trick that relativity allows us to do um, when you've got a massive object in space it distorts the space around it um, and that can act as a as a lens magnifying what you see beyond it it's a it's a way we study very very distant clusters of galaxies if a very distant cluster of galaxy has a, a nearer large cluster of galaxies in front of it that nearer cluster will bend the, the space around it and act as a kind of natural telescope for the cluster beyond it's a very very powerful technique mm. um, but this story starts with something called a gamma ray burst and we haven't talked much about those recently but they're thought to be the uh, basically the uh, emission of uh, a pulse of gamma rays uh, very short-lived not as short as fast radio bursts but short seconds sort of length of time um they are thought to be basically the result of stars colliding uh that they stars basically annihilate and you get these gamma rays um but, but they're short enough that uh if you had a gravitational lens and um, these pulses of gamma rays pass through it 
uh, you could find that you get two images of the gamma ray source because of the bending of the light. It's not a perfect lens. It, it can actually produce multiple images of the same object. Um, and because it's a pulse that you're getting, you can look for the time delay between one arriving, uh, uh, one one of the images arriving, and the and another one, um, which has taken whose light or whose gamma ray light has taken a different path through the gravitational lens. I'm not really explaining this very no, clearly. No, I, I, I get this. Yeah. You, you're uh, seeing the same thing twice at different intervals because of the disturbance to the space uh, in, around it's the, travelling through. Yeah, yeah exactly yeah. that. And so what's happened is that by looking at the various quantities, and they are specifically how far apart the, the two images of this gamma ray pulse are, and what the time delay is in between them, uh, the scientists who've done this work uh, have been able to determine um, that they are seeing the effect of gravitational lensing around a black hole. And you can put the numbers into the, uh, you know, into the formulae that relate to gravitational lensing to get out the mass of the black hole, and it turns out to be intermediate mass, 55,000 solar masses. And I might add as a footnote, Andrew, to this research, it comes from Australia. Um, one of the authors is from... Uh, Monash University, Eric Thrain, uh, and uh, Monash is a is a university in Melbourne that has actually a very very strong uh, school of theoretical astronomy in there. The, 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 one of the theoret theoreticians is somebody I know very well, John Latanzio, uh, and they do calculations about the way stars work and about you know the way um, that, that, that stars evolved. This is, I suspect, from the same group, but we're talking now about gravitational lenses, which is um, a remarkable, remarkable science. So this could be the first really concrete uh, evidence of an intermediate mass black hole being discovered by um, gravitational lensing, one of the curious freaks of, of relativity. It's a very, very nice story. Yeah. And I'll shut uh, up for a, a minute, but there is a postscript to it, which we might get to in a second. <laughs> no, I was just going to say it's interesting that they, they have perhaps discovered this through the observation of something else by the sound of it. So an event that, um, that, that, that headed our way in on two different paths. So we received the information at two different times and the byproduct is, oh, hang on a minute, the cause of that was an intermediate black hole. Yes, that's right. It's exactly it. Mm. Yeah. So it's that's always very nice when something happens serendipitously and you get this uh, a result that is something that you didn't expect. No. Um, the the postscript I mentioned is that one of the possibilities for the origin of intermediate black holes is that they may be primordial. That means they're remnants from the Big Bang. Uh, and the uh, Big Bang remnants are not something that we've really got any proof of. It was suggested actually originally by Stephen Hawking many years ago that the Big Bang might have sp spawned many, many um, black holes ranging in size from tiny ones to uh, what were they called? Slabs, I think, super large 
black holes we talked about them that's right a few yes. few weeks ago um they they were also thought to be primordial black holes so uh, a, a, an intermediate mass black hole because it, it it's too big to have been formed by a single star turning into a supernova but it's too small to be found at the center of a galaxy um, may well have been formed uh, in the big bang itself so they might be primordial ones and in fact one of the uh, one of the um, uh, other side effects of this study that uh, uh, that we were talking about the one from monash is that maybe there are very large numbers of these black holes mm. in our neighborhood of the milky way and of course some people have suggested that planet 9 is actually a primordial black hole it's not a planet at all it's something um, much more interesting uh, orbiting around the sun anything's possible and <laughs> i i I suppose it, it sort of brings us back to that that thing uh, whereby we suspect certain things exist, but we've never found evidence of them. But ultimately, we, we probably will. And uh, just like we suspect that life might be quite prolific in the universe, at least at a microbial level, yep. uh, intermediate black holes are probably quite prolific too. We just haven't been able to track them down as yet. Uh, that exactly. would be my theory. Uh, that, mm. <laughs> exactly. That's that that that's pretty pretty well sums up the the view of astronomers that you know these things are probably out there, uh, but we're not finding them in anything like the numbers we might expect. And maybe it's because they're, you know, that that the fact that this thing has no evidence of any other uh, anything bright surrounding it. The uh, all the all they know is that the the signal from the gamma ray burst arrived by two different pathways. Uh, but there's nothing to see. Uh, that in itself suggests that, you know, you're not seeing something that's gobbling up material from its surrounding galaxy. You're seeing something that's perhaps just lurking in space, which is what you would expect primordial black holes to do. So yeah. it does kind of make sense. Just hanging around on a street corner, doing drug deals, just, you know, <laughs> minding its own business and hoping it doesn't get caught. <laughs> but it has been. It's been caught. <laughs> Indeed. And will go to court and will be sentenced. <laughs> is uh, fascinating, very interesting, and hopefully uh, more to learn about the elusive um, intermediate black hole. This is Space Nuts, the podcast. Andrew Dunkley here with Fred Watson. Space Nuts. Now, um, I, I wanted to uh, say uh, hi to everybody who um, gets together on Facebook, uh, on the podcast group, and uh, talks to each other. Uh, if you want to meet like-minded people that listen to Space Nuts, uh, do a search for the Space Nuts podcast group and and join uh, fellow listeners because uh, they, they're a great community. They have a lot of fun and they uh, they often have a lot of uh, interesting discussions about this, that and the other. I occasionally will pop in and say hello and maybe answer a question. Sometimes questions are directed towards us and I, I, make, I make Fred's answers up because you know, <laughs> I just think that's a lot of fun. But, uh, yes, it's the Space Nuts pod podcast group. And you can find it on uh, on Facebook. Just uh, put a search in for that. And while we're at it, uh, also hello to our YouTube viewers who, uh, for some reason or another, are increasing in number even though they can see our faces. That is really lovely. So uh, if you prefer the vodcast over the podcast, uh, you can find us on YouTube as well. Now, Fred, uh, something a little bit different this week. We're going to read some questions. We've, uh, we've finally transposed 
our massive text questions that came on a spreadsheet that uh, basically was three kilometres long <laughs> in one big string and, and, and managed to whittle it down into manageable, edible parts. Uh, so uh, let's get into our, uh, our first question. Actually, it's a, it's a double bunger. Both our questions are double bungers this week. First one is from Andre in the Netherlands. Hello, Andre. He says, hello, Space Nuts. I have a few questions for your show which have been bothering me for a while. I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, first, our Milky Way has a diameter of about 150,000 light years. I would like to know how thick it is. Well, it is pretty dumb. I will <laughs> say that. Uh, so how high is the cake is his question. Second, oh, I would like to know if the plane of our own solar system is aligned with or tilted in comparison with the centre of our galaxy. And how is this for other solar systems in our galaxy? Are they all the same or different? Thank you and keep up the good work. A fan of your show. Andre, thank you so much. Well, we might as well start with uh, how thick the Milky Way is. Um, I think you're... Um, I'm you're, guessing you're, he means top to bottom. Well, in your thinking, he means in terms of its intellectual capacity, I guess, by, <laughs> uh, that it's pretty dumb. I'm, I'm, thinking, I'm thinking he's yeah. ha, have talking you got, about the yeah. height. <laughs> have you got any guesses, Andrew? Um, well, if it's spread out 150,000 light years, I'm going to guess probably a quarter of that. Yeah, that's an interesting guess. So uh, we should make it clear that we're talking about the, the disk itself rather mm -hmm. than the halo, because the, there is this halo which is nowhere near as dense as the disk. It's much more, you know, the stars are much more sparsely spread out. It's where the globular clusters are that I mentioned a few minutes ago. And that's more or less spherical. Um, so, you know, yeah, it's probably 150,000 light years top to bottom. But when you come to the disk, um, the answer is a lot more interesting and just a little bit more complicated um, because we define, and this actually comes from work that um, I wasn't directly involved, but friends of mine, people I work closely with certainly were, um, it's, it's got various components uh, and it depends which ones you're talking about. So, um, yes, 150,000, maybe even 200,000 light years in diameter. It's growing all the time, or at least our mm. estimate of it is. Um, the, the thinnest component of the disk is called the young thin disk. So there's two bits. There's the thin disk and the thick disk. But the young thin disk is where star formation itself is taking place now. And, um, you know, the Milky Way's youngest stars are, as well as most of the gas and dust. It's the, the, the bit that we see when we look along the, the, the centre of the Milky Way. And that the thickness of that is only about, you know, up to about 500 light years, maybe less, maybe more like 300 light years. It's, it's really very, very thin, uh, almost like a blade through space when you think about it, given how mm. big the diameter is. Um, and then there is an older component, which is called the old thin disk. Um, and that's stars that have basically migrated away from the young thin disk, so they're older stars. And that's roughly a 1,000 light years thick. Um, oh, OK. And, and then there is what we call the thick disk, which, uh, and it was the difference between the thin disk and the thick disk discovered by scientists who I used to work with in Edinburgh, actually, um, uh, years ago, um, uh, about, gosh, it's th more than 30 years ago. It's a long time ago. But that the idea of the thin and thick disk is, as I said, it, it's been around for quite a long time. 
Um, Neil Reed and Jerry Gilmore, I think, were the proponents of that. People I worked with in Edinburgh, uh, still going strong in the world of astronomy. The thick disc uh, is thicker, and it is <laughs> round about um, something in the region of five to ten thousand light years. So you know, it's probably about five thousand light years thick. Right. Um, compared with a thousand for the old thin disc and and, a, and something like three hundred for the young thin disc, so um, the thick disc is very definitely a separate component. The work um, that I did with colleagues in the in the rave project, the radial velocity experiment that we did using the United Kingdom Schmidt Telescope, we collected the speeds and physical parameters of half a million stars, and it was possible from the results of that, to see the, the delineation between the thin disk and the thick disk, um, even though we actually tried to avoid the disk because it's there are too many stars in it. Uh, we were mostly looking at the halo of the galaxy with that experiment. Yeah. Anyway, a great question, and thank you for that. Moving on so to we part... Talk, we, sorry, I just need to clarify. Yeah. When we're talking thick disk and thin disk, are we talking layers? Yes, in a sense, we are. I mean, you've, you've, it, it's all done because because you're talking about stars, uh, which are individual objects and not, uh, you know, something like uh, gas. You're, you're really talking uh, about statistical things. But so the statistics are that uh, there are a lot more stars in the thin disk than the thick disk. Uh, and you can imagine it as a layer between one and the other. It's, um, it's probably not a very flat layer because, once again, there's probabilities involved. Uh, but really remarkable that that we can now recognise these two characteristics of the of the disc. Mm. Um, in fact, we recognise too that the halo itself is not uniform. There's only an inner halo and an outer halo, and they've got quite different rotational characteristics. So, uh, as we find out more about our galaxy, we realise its structure is more and more complicated. Yeah. Well, that. Why am I surprised? <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> Now, he also wants to know about uh, how the solar system is aligned uh, or tilted in comparison with the galaxy, and is it the same for other solar systems? Uh, the answer to that, to that is no. Um, oh. uh, the answer to the tilt of our own solar system is that the, the plane of the planets, what we call the ecliptic plane, is tilted to the plane of the galaxy, in other words, to the thin disk, uh, it's tilted at an angle of 60 degrees. So it's sitting up at a, you know, an unusual angle, uh, n nowhere near the same plane. And that is true of all solar systems. We find that they are at various different angles. I think people have looked for uh, the kind of... Um, correlations that might say, oh, 60 degrees is the most popular and there must be a reason for that. That's not been found. Uh, so, yes, you have, uh, you have a, you know, quite a, a strong tilt of the solar system to the, the plane of the galaxy. And, uh, and that seems, is normal. Yes, and that's normal. And it seems to be, you know, what you've got, you remember how the, the, the solar system was formed. You, you start off with a cloud of gas and dust that collapses under its own gravity. And it's the, the little random rotations within that cloud that eventually take on a preferred direction and a preferred plane of rotation. So the whole thing starts rotating. That could be in any direction. And that's why mm. we get this randomness. There's a great question. Okay. A, a very, very nice yeah. to have uh, Andre's question about it. Indeed. Thank you for the question, Andre, and I uh, hope we adequately covered 
your two elements today. Let's uh, move on to a question now, a couple of questions from David in Springfield. He describes it as a dark matter quandary. Evidence for dark matter was found by observing that the stars of galaxies all move at the same speed, regardless of whether they are near or far from the galactic centre. Uh, how then does a spiral galaxy even form with all stars moving at the same rate? Like water spiralling down a drain, the spiral shape requires the stuff towards the outer edge to be moving more slowly than the stuff near the centre, right? Uh, dark matter should make formation of spiral gal galaxies impossible. Why aren't all galaxies of the non-spiral globular type if dark matter is real? And another question from David on the subject of terraforming Mars, which we touched on earlier. The red planet has a very thin atmosphere. Terraforming would have to invoke creating a practical atmosphere at a density more like uh, it used, uh, used to have a long time ago. With Mars having such low gravity, wouldn't any increase in its atmosphere we engineer just evaporate back into space like its original one did? If so, would the rate of that evaporation be at such a slow rate that we could maintain it, kind of like having a slow leak in a tyre, you just keep adding air once in a while? Yeah, I like that question. <laughs> I we'll do get too. back to that. But uh, yeah. yes, I've got a feeling the answer to the first question is that spiral galaxies are a trick of the eye, which I think we talked about a few weeks ago. They, uh, the spirals can only be seen under certain circumstances and all galaxies aren't actually spiral galaxies. Is that what we said? It, it, that's more or less it, yes, in the sense that the spirals are in some way an, an optical illusion. Um, what David says is absolutely right. Um, although uh, he's, I think the premise of what he's saying is, is wrong um, because uh, yes, we've we've he's correct in that uh, the rotational speed of stars nearer the centre is more or less the same at the outer edge, um, but the if the if the spiral was a physical property of stars, uh, then. Uh, you would still get the winding up effect because the inner stars have got much, they have a much shorter distance to go to go around once than the outer stars, even though they're all rotating at the same speed. Um, mm -hmm. It's not rotating like a solid body. It's rotating with the linear velocity of all the stars being effectively the same speed, roughly 250 kilometers per second. Um, and even in that circumstance, you would get a wind-up of the spiral arms. And in fact, it would be wound up so tightly uh, that that's how we know that spiral arms are not just strings of stars. Uh, and as you alluded to, it's something else. Um, and what we're seeing with the spiral is this wave of uh, higher density moving through the disk of stars and gas. And as it moves through the gas, the pressure triggers star formation. You get all these high-mass short-lived stars which burn over only a few tens of millions of years, then blow up as supernovae, um, and you get this brilliance uh, forming along the spiral arm. So the, the spiral arm is a wave, we call it a density wave. And that's why you've got these beautiful, gentle spirals rather mm. than something really tightly wound uh, in, uh, in, in a galaxy, which is what you'd get if they really were strings of stars um, because you know, they're moving at uh, the same linear speed, but they would, the, the, the inner stars have got far less to go, distance to go than the outer ones. So they, they, 
immediately pull it into something looking like a clock spring. Whatever a clock spring is. <laughs> people don't know what clock springs are these days. Young I remember don't. them well. Um, anyway, the, that's, the young, that's one. Young whippersnappers don't know what a ah, clock spring is. Right, yes, indeed. Um, so uh, it's, it's not the case that dark matter would make the formation of spiral galaxies impossible. In fact, it probably enhances it by... Um, it may well be that the dark matter halo of galaxies stabilises the density wave and gives it, uh, you know, that... Uh, stunning property that we see in galaxies like M80, uh, M81, which is one of my favourites. So it's got a beautiful spiral structure. Mm. Uh, hope that answers the question. Um, Hopefully. Moving yeah. along to terraforming Mars. Terraforming um, Mars. Now, we, you, you said earlier, impossible, but he brings up a couple of interesting concepts uh, which we, we should discuss. But it, it, let's say we did terraform Mars and we did create an atmosphere. It couldn't hold. That's right. So what he's saying is exactly right. Um, the density, the gravitational pull of Mars is insufficient to hang on to uh, an Earth-like atmosphere. You lose the oxygen and the nitrogen very quickly. Um, the, 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 the evidence for that is, is sort of ongoing as well because the last remnants of Mars's thick atmosphere are still disappearing into space. Uh, the Marvin spacecraft can detect uh, oxygen, I think hydrogen, oxygen, uh, leaving the planet, uh, being basically released from the planet now. So uh, terraforming is um, a challenge. If you want to turn its atmosphere into an Earth-like atmosphere, you've got to do what uh, David suggests at the end of his, his uh, question there. Um, mm. Could we still maintain it because of the slow rate of evaporation? Well, I think the answer is maybe, um, but, uh, you know, where are you going to get all this carbon dioxide from that you yes. need to stabilise the atmosphere? Um, and my guess, uh, you know, his, his lovely um, analogue of a slow leak in a tyre, which I like very much, uh, you've just got to keep pumping it up. I think you'd probably have to pump it up faster than, uh, you know, I, I think you'd, you'd struggle to pump it up faster than the leak. That's the bottom line. Yeah, I think uh, I think you're right. I yeah. I... My theory is if we ever did uh, go to Mars to uh, put a permanent human presence there, you'd probably live in domed communities or something. You'd, you'd create an artificial environment and live in, in domes over the surface and I, I think that would be the only way to make it feasible and even that would be a major engineering challenge. But who knows? One day that might just be the case. Yeah. Well, you know my view on all this, that um, the ethical Don't way do to, to colonise space is to build megastructures, uh, mm. you know, like Halo Worlds, which has engineering that's probably not that much different from trying to terraform a planet. In fact, terraforming a planet would be much more uh, of a challenge. Um, yeah, interesting, interesting stuff. But uh, yes. I think you're right. I think domes on Mars are what we're going to see eventually when we get research stations there, perhaps. I hope we never try and colonise the planet, but if we get research stations, which I think is a good idea with our humans living there, and uh, in, in they'd have to be radiation protected as well. You know, that's the other problem with terraforming. How do you generate a magnetic field? Because you need that mm. to protect the atmosphere as well as as well as everything else. We, we get lots of space wheelbarrows and we just uh, demolish Mercury or something and add it to <laughs> Mars. Right. 
That's, <laughs> I've heard that sort of thing before. <laughs> oh dear, we tow Mercury out to Mars. Wait, uh, wait, yeah. What? <laughs> <laughs> or just just ram them together and just yeah. wait a couple of billion years for it to all yeah, settle yeah, down. And yeah. mm. anyway. that, that'll work. Mm. Anyway, there you are, David. Um, hopefully we uh, helped you out with your inquiry and thanks for sending in your questions. And that brings us to the end. But don't forget, if you do have uh, some questions for us, you can do that on our website. Uh, just go to spacenutspodcast.com and you can click on the little tab that says AMA which I'm doing right now as we speak. And it brings up the uh, the interface where you can either type a question in the old-fashioned way using our email interface. Whoever would have thought the day would come where I refer to typing an email as old-fashioned. But uh, the other option is if you've got a device with a microphone, you just press the Start Recording button and it will record what you're saying. Uh, don't forget to tell us who you are and where you're from and ask your question and boom, all done. Simple as that. And while you're there, don't forget to visit the Space Nuts shop. There's all sorts of goodies there that you might like to add to your repertoire of useless junk at your place. Um, but, you know, you'll be helping us out at the same time. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, check it all out at spacenutspodcast.com. And, Fred, that brings us to the conclusion of another episode, 247 of the Space Nuts Podcast. Thank you, sir, and it's been great fun as always. <laughs> and thanks to all our listeners for sending in their questions, and we will get to more next week. <laughs> we will indeed. See Thank you, you later. Fred. See you next time. Bye-bye. 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 Fred Watson, astronomer at large, part of the uh, the trio that creates this podcast. And hello back uh, in the studio to Hugh. It's not actually a studio, it's a back shed and uh, he shares it with the dog. Um, but uh, that's okay, plenty of dust there to put on Mars. Uh, uh, but from me, thank you again for watching or listening and contributing and we'll see you again next time. Bye-bye. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. Come